Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Kishin. I write the Necker Substack, and I'm very excited to share with you all my conversation with Paul Podolsky. So Paul is a little bit similar to me in that he used to work on Wall Street, and importantly, he used to work at Bridgewater and had a lot of experience with emerging markets. He spent time in, in Russia and China, and he left and now is a writer. He writes a substack called Things I Learned in Things I Didn't Learn in School, which I really enjoy. And uh, where he also podcasts. And uh, he's also an author of two books, including one book that uh, I recently read on my on my vacation called Master Minion. And it's interesting because typically when somebody tries to infuse, tr tries to tell a story um, like a thriller that's set in the context of financial markets. And infuse topics from you know trading and investing into into that kind of story. I'm usually it's not my jam because I think it's very hard to pull that off. The stakes aren't aren't high enough, right? You need kind of life and in-depth stakes. And let's be honest, most of the time, you know, as an investor, you're kind of it's you know, it's it feels high stakes, but it's not the same. And so usually themes of you know crime conspiracy and, and, and those kinds of things um, get infused and, and merged. And it's really hard, I think, to pull that off because you have to sort of understand different worlds and then find a compelling angle. Um, I really enjoyed Master Minion and I think Paul really pulled it off in part because, and this goes to his background, because he's able to um, blend sort of two worlds, right? The, the world of the the hedge fund and the person that views um, views the market and operates kind of maybe from from New York or Boston or, or London, from kind of a safe location, and then the person, in this case the protagonist, who has to traverse that world and connect it with um, you know the other side, like in this case Russia and China, and and kind of go behind the curtain and go to places that play an enormously important role in the global economy um, or global resource markets or in commodity and and uh, and currency markets. Um, but that just function very differently and have a different level of intrigue and danger. And because Paul has, you know, knows a lot of people, has, has been there, I, I think he's able to to really make it come to life. Anyways, I really enjoyed the book. I reached out to Paul. I was like, let's talk which we did. And uh, yeah, we talked about everything and from, from the book to, to life and, and, and his career and kind of how he thinks about things. It's um, yeah, it's just me and Paul talking. I hope you enjoyed. I certainly did. And I would encourage you to check out his writing, whether it's the Substack or the book. And with that, let's go. I wanted to start off with, with the book, which I've checked through on my recent vacation. And as I told you, right, I'm, I was a little bit skeptical in the beginning because I think um, fiction that involves financial markets um, is is tricky, right? The stakes may not be high enough. A lot of there's a lot of things like it's hard. It's a kind of a technical topic, and um, and I think, well, frankly, often people who want to write it they come out of the industry and they may not have, you know, it's it's hard to write very engaging thrillers. So I I loved Master Minion. And I think there are a lot of layers and a lot of really Thank interesting you. ideas in it. And I could really tell that you were 
both deep in the industry, but also deep in the countries that, um, that the protagonists in the story kind of touch. So I'd love it if you could give me a little bit of background. I mean, you worked at, at Bridgewater, you've spent time in, in Russia and China before. Give me a little bit of your, your, your journey to, to the book and, and how did the, the story come to you? And just, just, uh, let's start off with a little bit of, about, about Paul and how you found your way to, uh, to that book. Sure. Um, great. And, and also thank you for having me here. This is, this is a lot of fun. This is at the, after you spent years in isolation, creating one of these things, it's, it's, it's great to connect with, uh, readers. Let me, let me just make a big picture point about, uh, what I think is special about a fiction story that's different than nonfiction. And, and then I can get into the history of the background. And I think the, the, the strange thing about fiction is there's a, just a weird paradox, which is on the one hand, you're just making stuff up. And on the other hand, it's sometimes easier to say something true by making something up. And I think the big shift is that in the real world, you never quite know what other people are thinking. You have a hypothesis. And fiction, I think more than any other art form, allows you to create a bunch of characters and imagine their interior world, which is so much of the, where the, the, the mystery and the richness of life is. And so while there's tons of great nonfiction books about Russia and China and finance and personal development and psychology and all these types of things that the book touches on, you can't do that. And my first book was a nonfiction book, and I know that well. And the, the segue into the world I was in, where I was in for years, both in journalism and in investment management, most of the time with Bridgewater Associates, if you make anything up, you're done. You're mm. fired. And so for me, it was unbelievably exciting to be able to sit down there and just make stuff up. So stepping back, uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, my dad was a scientist. Uh, there. And DC's got a lot of different embassies. And I was always very curious. I'd love to hear actually more about your background, but I was always very curious about where these people are from. And it was a really different world then. The Soviet Union covered a huge chunk of the world. And what we were told in school is that they wanted to kill us and bomb us. And there were literally, you know, we talk about nuclear Armageddon and all that. So it was very curious for me to be able to understand what that perspective is. Why did those people want to kill us? What was that about? So uh, I went to college at Brown, studied a year of Russian. I was terrible at it. And I had a vague notion that I wanted to be a writer. And I felt like a writer needed to have some sort of unusual experiences. Mm. And so when I graduated college, my main requirement was for a job is I wanted something that would be interesting, that would give me some sort of profound life experience. And I had a couple different options. But the year I graduated, and it's somewhat the, the degree that happenstance matters, the Soviet Union collapsed. And for the first time, you could go there uh, more easily than you ever could before. So some graduates would go to San Francisco or they would go to New York. You all of a sudden could go to Russia. And uh, that's what I did. I got an offer, an opportunity to go there. And I started, uh, uh, as there as a teacher and then I began selling news stories. And that's when I really began to work as a uh, professional writer. And there was graduate school. I transitioned to being a, uh, uh, less of an observer, more of a participant in financial markets, worked as a banker for six years. Then I was at Bridgewater Associates for 16 years. And 
began with a very narrow understanding of financial markets. The very first thing that I traded was a single futures contract in the Canadian dollar. And then from there, I began trading currencies and bonds and stocks and all that, and really learned about portfolio management and, and all the lessons that were along that. So I had trading as a writer and I had trading uh, in, in, in finance. And I wrote a nonfiction book and I saw there was a completely different way of relating to the world than investing is. In other words, stories from an author's perspective, you spend a lot of time alone trying to distill something. As one uh, writer acquaintance of mine said, trying to write the bullshit out of an idea. Mm-hmm. And for me, it involves lots and lots of rewriting to, mm-hmm. to cleanse it. But then you put the story out there and you get these, what I describe as pigs from the universe. The story connects with somebody and you get this response back. And it's kind of a magical process that you've created something, hopefully something that's quality. I think only time will really tell. And so I was very enticed by that. So that was sort of the writing and investment. I'd had an idea when I was a banker in Boston that first came to me of sort of like this Armageddon of financial markets. It was during the finan- it was during the first tech bubble, and there was you know these huge flows up, and I just had this feeling like there were these Hollywood films, like these asteroids about to strike, and I was like, it's the same thing when you get these huge financial flows. So that was one idea that was percolating, and then I was at a dinner, and Paul Volcker uh, was sitting next to me, and I asked him about what he thought about what was going on in Russia. And he said to me, I stopped going there when they murdered my friend. And that was interesting to me. And that was really the spark of the book, which was mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of stuff that happened in this book is based on actual historical episodes. Now, none of these things happened at the same time, but there was this horrific murder of a deputy central banker in Russia. And that was sort of the spark. And then it went from there. I know it's a long answer. I'm about to be quiet. What I really wanted to do was relate to people how these places felt from the inside. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I don't think you could understand them if you don't understand the secret police. So a little bit the way a movie like The Lives of Others brought that world to life. Yeah. Those were the type of influences. So there's a lot there. But anyways, that was what there's, was all going there's on. There's a ton there. Thanks for sharing. And I can, I mean, I grew up in Germany, but didn't really experience, uh, I was born in 86, so I didn't really experience the the East-West division consciously. Um, but what you just touched on, I mean, there's there's a lot, but this sort of understanding of how these places, and I guess in particular uh, Russia and China, how they function on the inside and how, um, I think one thing that the book does very well is sort of you have a U.S.-based hedge fund Right. And then you have this connective tissue in terms of the protagonist who goes into those worlds and kind of tries to gather intelligence and relate, as you described, kind of what's going on the inside. And you can kind of understand how far removed that is from the experience in the U.S. where there's, okay, you have rule of law and, you know, um, and and you don't really have an understanding here of. um of of the kind of the, the different forces shaping like you, you think of things the as weight um, th- th- and there were a lot of great quotes i'm i'm gonna um can i say one thing before you yes you jump into yes the quotes? so what i was i lived in russia for three years before you know that that period of time it was so foreign to me that even the first year i was there so this is total immersion i still didn't get it 
because it's just a different wavelength that's very difficult for a person who grew up with rule of law, with those concepts, to believe that this isn't some sort of joke, that it's actually real. And the final thing I, I came to, which helped me understand, is it is medieval. In all that sense, it is medieval. So if you think about the, the, your, your picture in your mind about the way Europe was working in the 14th and 15th century, there is a king. You pay tithes. Mm. There is palace intrigue. People are poisoned. You could end up in prison for no reason. Rule of law grew out of all of that. But that world is still alive and well in parts of the world. And it's a very bizarre thing that a place with a space station that could do complicated computer programs both has the medieval in it, but it's there. And what you're looking at in Ukraine right now is exactly that. Yes. It's a land grab for disobeying the emperor or the czar or whatever you call it. That's And the punishment, the punishment is death. Yeah. All right. So let me introduce two two quotes that, that uh, and, and they'll connect exactly what you talked about because you also wrote an op-ed about um, your, yeah. your family relationship. So. But the first one is the idea that the state itself was criminal was something Americans had trouble getting their mind around. And the protagonist yes. kind of says like, okay, I, he's trying to grasp that. But then interestingly, he says the boss, and we'll have to talk about the, the character of the boss, which is just one of my favorite. It's just so, I, I related to it so much, the, the boss meaning the uh, portfolio manager of the hedge fund. And the character's like, well, it, the boss might understand. In the boss's mind, there were predator and prey, right? And so you're either... Predator or prey, and the boss decided to be to be um, uh, prey. So, so intuitively, somebody who's made it to the top in the U.S., at least in an economic sense, may actually under may actually grasp that dynamic a little bit more. Um, so, I'm curious how if, if that reflects some kind of experience in in reality. And then I'd love to talk about your experience with Russian propaganda and and Ukraine, because you the Wall Street Journal op-ed that you wrote about that was was really interesting. So I think there's a strain within uh, investment management of people who have that worldview of predator and prey. Um, and I remember one person early on when I was learning uh, uh, trading described holding a bunch a position. Uh, I think he was uh, long the market and there were a bunch of shorts and uh, and he was basically trying to calculate how much money the shorts had relative to his log. And he was like, listen, it's either either I'm going to live or or either it's like life or death mm. type of thing. And he used a term which is not politically correct, but you obviously hear a lot of that in the financial market. He goes, he goes, I'm Custard and there's Indians up there and the, there's Indian up there in the rocks. That's the way he looked at the world. And there's a lot of people... Uh, not all of them by, by any means, who think that way. And so there is a strain of that. And um, then there's an added twist that the boss is uh, African-American. And so he has a more complicated, he could understand a little bit more about how the state could uh, be that evil, an influence. Mm. So there's that, there's that added layer uh, uh, there as well. So, you know, the characters, their inventions, uh, and their composites of tons and tons of people I saw sort of whittled into types. And then there's also, you know, there's references to other, uh, there's, you know, literature there. So Robert Penn Ward's description of the governor of Louisiana, you know, those those types of, so I tried to get all that in there as well. And like you, I found that a lot of money books were awful. 
And I wanted to create a money book that wasn't. That was the goal. Yeah, I, I, I think you've definitely succeeded in that. And and I think mostly because there's these composites, these these characters, they're they have that rich inner life and then they find themselves this I really enjoyed um on you know, riffing on the theme and the title, right? They find themselves in these systems. Yes. And it's always this master minion relationship. And that can be um, a relationship with money. It can be a relationship with kind of the forces in your own organization, the hierarchy. There's a lot of yes. um, going into how people navigate these systems, whether it's, you know, a corrupt state, you're in Russia and you sort of have to arrange yourself with the circumstances. Um, and you maybe you think of yourself as of not being corrupt, but then it's still sort of part of your family. There's, there's a lot of, of this to navigate. And, um, so I'm curious, like, tell me about how you came to that, that theme. And then, um, also just maybe on, on Russia, you made this comment that, um, propaganda outweighs actual experience. So I found a little bit of this theme of people close their eyes to, to reality in, in the book too. Like they don't want to see what actually, um, happens or, 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 or they kind of wrestle with with that and and how to how do i put this without giving spoilers <laughs> right well it gives people gives people a whole bunch of terrible choices there's a quote yes. at the beginning of the books from from Chekhov. uh I, I should grab the copy off my desk but basically that life is a vexatious trap and i thought that it was actually unbelievably powerful and so you see these traps recreated in many different forms i just think they're more virulent in those other uh, cultures. And so uh, Wall Street has that. And I think that that money on Wall Street has an addictive character. Mm. And people are willing to put up with a lot uh, to endure that. And they and you have these jobs that pay a huge amount of money, but many of them don't involve that much talent. Being a, I would say being a person like the boss is a different type of thing, you know, a sort of Soros-like character who can see the future. And that's slightly different. But many of them don't. And so some of the characters I was trying to get out of the hedge fund are people that are getting these insanely big salaries, like the, the, the chief trader there. And they have this constant insecurity and they're stuck in the system where they love the money, but they don't have the talent to do something outside of that. And so that's that master minion relationship. And then in the secret police types of places, this places like in Russia or China, they're so corrupt. And I saw this firsthand with families. It's unbelievable. Uh, that there is no escape. And so the classic, the, you know, the, one of the characters there, he actually wants to be a reformer and mm. non-corrupt. And there are, there are people who you will meet in these places there, but corruption has sort of infected his family. He's basically on the payroll of his father-in-law who is tied to all these nefarious things. And that repeats again and again and again and again. Like you can't extract yourself from it. And that's one of the reasons why they're so hard to change and guaranteed, you know, if I were to write a novel about what's going on right now, guaranteed that's going on right now. There's top people in both those countries, Russia and China, who realize what's going on is terrible, but they're trapped. Mm. Yeah. And I wanted to give people who are outside of the system a sense of what it's like to be trapped, like viscerally. What does that feel like? It's very scary. And, um, and the, yes, there's a lot of denial that goes on around that to try to close our eyes. And I've tried to talk about that in my own family to a degree. My wife is Russian is what you're referring to. And I've had a series of conversations with her mother and they're just incomprehensible from a Western standpoint. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, right? Because 
I think what, what the book gave me is that, is, is that appreciation of when that communication breaks down and you feel like you speak different languages, when, and you realize somebody else is just watching, for example, the propaganda channel yeah. and, and you can't even find that common ground. Um, but it's easy to miss also the fact that their life plays, it, it takes place in this very different system, right? And so they're subject, like you said, to these, to, to different traps and different, um, dangers too. And so it's, um, maybe for me, it was, um, the idea was also like to, to try to not be as judgmental, right? Because I'm, yes. and, and you also refer to being behind the, the firewall, right? The person enters China and suddenly you're cut off from information flow and people have yes. to sort of navigate the different levels of how do I get access to not the truth, but to facts, right? Like when somebody else decides that for me, um, so the non-judgmental thing you're saying, that's yeah. music to my ears, because what I wanted to like, on the one hand, I do think that you need to distinguish between good and evil, not be mm -hmm. a moral relativist. At least this is my own uh, perspective. And on the other hand, you have to work very hard to understand the world through another person's eyes. And what I found is a lot of the reporting and writing that goes on here, it sort of looks at things in either a good or evil type of... and. I understand where that comes from. And again, there's a role for it. But I think it's deeper to try to first understand why these people are thinking the way they're thinking. And so for me, like creating the character of the the characters of the Russian and the Chinese secret police was a really powerful exercise. And this is a very strange thing about writing fiction, which is that after a while, multiple rewrites, the characters really begin to seem like real people. I know that seems like you're adult or something like that, but they do. Like you can sort of imagine like if you were having a dinner party and these people around there, what that would be like. And that's maybe when they uh, they they come a, a, enough alive. And so the, you know, the character of the Russian secret police, there is this, you know, this trend in people. He really believes, and you see this a lot of these places, that there's order and there's disorder. Mm. And they really believe that disorder works against the vast majority of people's of interest. And you're like, well, if I have to pay for that of literally shooting innocent people or controlling people's thoughts, doesn't that seem like a high cost? They do not look at it that way. And these people are very prevalent in there. And also the degree of chaos that both Russia and China have experienced. Yeah. China experienced hunger in my lifetime. Acute hunger. I was born in 68. In my lifetime, acute hunger. And the most recent Substack post, I put out a picture that I took in rural China that actually showed like a ration board of in a, in a, in a city where they're... Yeah, so... So, though, so I think what the very conservative elements will say in these places is, listen, okay, your system works for you, but uh, it's very specific circumstances. If we apply it here, we'll get chaos and we've experienced chaos. And so that's and so to try to illustrate that way of thinking and that clash is and that clash is it's very real here, but it's much more powerful there because the the in other words, there's a clash between the liberal and the conservative here. Just there, the secret police have the upper hand. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. And you and you touch on that theme in the book, right? So the the in particular in China, the the history, the the sort of the, the culture that goes back thousands of years versus uh, here. And this idea that over that time frame, you have cycles, you have disorder, right? You have chaos and the same, and, and that today there's a, um, 
there's a moment where the boss talks about change and how hard it is for people to imagine the world just being very different from what yeah. they're experiencing now. But then yeah. if you look at history, right, there were moments when, you know, China was the dominant power and like there's, there's all these different configurations and people just can't actually, people can't actually imagine that. And he's like, well, but you have to, and especially if you want to be um, a successful investor, because when that change happens, it's when, um, you know, fortunes rise and fall, so to speak, or people, I guess, die right. depending the, the, on, on the country. That's right. There's a huge, I do think that really good, really great portfolio managers have something, I think that these, these, the, uh, there's a certain type of test I've seen, personality tests that looks at how many levels somebody looks at life at, do they, you know, are they somebody who looks at life of like seven levels or five layers? And the vast majority of people can't, you know, they have trouble thinking very far ahead. And I think really exceptional portfolio managers can look at something that's today and imagine a radically different set of circumstances. And their mind works a little bit like a kaleidoscope. In other words, they're staring at the world and they shift the kaleidoscope and they keep shifting the kaleidoscope and it's literally changing every single day. And they're imagining what that future is. But some of those things are radically different than what we're living through right now. And those are the people that correctly call stock market bubble tops and crises and things. And it's, it's a weird thing. It's a, there is an element to it that I think is quite artistic. Because if you think about artists that create stuff that seems really out there initially, but then 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, people are like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever done. They're yeah. doing the exact same thing. They're imagining a set of pictures in our head that are going to resonate. And it takes a while for, you know, look like a Jasper Johns or something. And this is a theme of painting in the, in the person. So I spent a lot of time looking at different painters. But if you look at this or the, you know, the classic Picassos and Cezanne's, all this, when it came out, a lot of it wasn't, or a basket, it wasn't looked at at the time, except by a relatively narrow group of people, as having some sort of timeless value. And then with time, people came to the art because they were seeing something ahead of time. So I think really great artists have this view and really great portfolio managers do, but they're using their skills in slightly different ways. Yeah, that's It's imagining yeah. pictures of the future. That's very interesting. I uh, think there's a Bruce Kovner quote where he basically talks about his strength being able to just imagine these different configurations and actually think them think them through, which I think um, is is what you just described. And and I totally agree with um, the the idea that at a certain level, really great investors they kind of transcend this. Oh, just take data and analyze it and, and run the numbers and be at this sort of mechanical craftsmanship level and you go to some degree of artistry where it also gets very um it, it's hard at that point to um to understand what the lessons are because it becomes a very kind of individual experience and like somebody yes. operates at this level it's like well i can't actually replicate that so i i enjoy studying it but i'm not sure right. what the you know it's it's a it's a very unique and, and rare thing and well, a lot, a lot of investors will be, sorry for interrupting, will be okay. very focused on data, which is obviously important. And they'll look back like what we're going on right now with the pandemic. And, and, and they'll say, listen, if you look back, you know, at, at seven of the last eight cases when the Fed raised rates this many points, this is what's going to happen next. And that may be what's happening. But that's literally looking back on history and saying, okay, this is predictive of the future. And I think you certainly want to be familiar with history deeply to to be a good investor or to be a good writer you have to know the genre 
But the powerful thing is, is that it doesn't neatly repeat. And so what's different about this thing? Well, it's pretty different than the 1918 pandemic. And then this one, you have this asynchronicity where China was shut down and then it's opening up. And then you have fiscal transfers and fiat money. And at the same time, these very powerful vaccines. So you get these big seesawing of forces that are in some way similar to what happened in the past, but not really. And so I think the truly the truly great investors are able to be informed by all that history, but then diverge from it in appropriate amounts, which is kind of a magical thing, which is why they fetch the prices they do. Yeah. Um, I don't think this is this is not from the book, but from your Substack, um, where you talked about and and I love the the metaphor right? you call it kind of markets and the, the money river, sort of the this constant yeah. flow. And you said there are two two tribes, the catastrophists and the equilibriumists. Yes. Um, and it was funny because then I was thinking about the the character of the boss who has this very, you know, this this idea of financial Armageddon and the dollar. He's a will catastrophist. Fall. Right. And he has this this big construct of how everything's going to change, which on the one hand, sometimes you need that big thesis, but then it can also be deceiving because you've attached yes. a lot to it. Um, and reality turns out differently. You can uh, you can blow up. And I was curious how you think about um, maybe yourself, but also kind of the, the people you've observed. And, and is it possible to be in one camp and then just do that mental switch when it's like, oh, this is not working out. So I guess, you know, um, or or because... Or, it's very easy to observe the people who are always in one camp, right? They're gold bugs. Or yes. Like they, they always have that one thesis. But have you seen people kind of pivot back and forth between this? Is the boss, um, you know, able to to let go of that? And and where where would you place yourself? Oh, it's good. It's it's a good question. So I feel like most people aren't able to pivot back and forth, and I think it's exhausting to do it. And it's easier to be rooted in a in a specific way of doing things. You know, I, I buy bonds when the yield curve is steep, but I sell them when the yield curve is inverted and blah, 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 and that type of thing. I think being able to switch back and forth is rare, but I have met people that do that. And, um, you know, they're, they're, some of them are not famous, you know, traders. They've, they've done very well, but they're, you know, kind of reclusive, quiet type people who I've, who I've met over the years. So I think it's possible, but it's extremely rare. It's not great from a business perspective because it's difficult to replicate. In other words, if you're trying to amass assets under management as mm. a firm, people like that are really tricky because what if you know God knows what's going on inside their head and when they're switching? And if you can't explain it, then all of a sudden you can't really scale the business. So it can be very, very powerful, uh, but it's not necessarily something that is going to be um, institutionalized. I would say, by the way, that that same thing of getting locked into a certain way of thinking, you also see in both China and Russia relative to the West. So the Marxist thinking that Xi Jinping in particular is is clearly a big advocate of, that is deeply rooted with a pretty mechanistic framework, which is that the West is going to collapse because of its internal contradictions, that you know, the rich people will exploit the workers. That's what they're incentivized to do. The workers will become outraged. There'll be a rebellion. The whole thing will collapse. Like, based on his statements, it sounds like he truly believes that. Whereas, if you look at the Western system, I think one of the things about it is is that it has a flexibility built into it. If you look at Germany's history, obviously that flexibility can sometimes snap in terrifying ways. So that's that's a reality as well. But you know, if you look at the U.S., either the more recent history, or you go back to civil rights, or the Great Depression, or the Civil War. 
there were all these periods of time when it really did look like Marx's thesis was going to be right and that he was wrong because the system transformed. So I think that it's not only the West and portfolio managers that can get stuck in that, but also political leaders. I think what's informing Putin right now to some degree is a really bad reading of history and what he thinks that these timeless and universal types of things that he can apply. Um, in terms of in terms of myself, I would say um, I'm uh, my style of, you know, since leaving Bridgewater investing my own money, I would describe it as more of a hybrid. So I believe in writing things down and studying history and things like that, but I don't rigidly follow rules in in what I do. And maybe if I was trying to build a money management business, I would, but I'm not. And so that's that's sort of where I've I've arrived at, which is a little bit like the book. I try to listen to the arguments of the equilibrium type of people and listen to the arguments of the catastrophists. And there's a little bit of truth on both sides so that I try to sort of find my way through that mm. patch. And, the, the you know, the pandemic was a classic example of that. For a while, it felt like the catastrophists were winning. And then here it was. The thing came out, you know, everybody had been worried about a pandemic. But lo and behold, the system actually responded in all these unbelievably unpredictable, beautiful ways that, you know, they actually figured out the right monetary fiscal thing, at least to alleviate the worst of it. They probably created too much money, but they were trying to do the right thing. And the venture incentivizing these people to come up with these vaccines, it worked. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. And so and then we got back to an equilibrium and here we are all unmasked in gyms. And, you know, there you go. That's a good. That's a good point. And, and uh, you just wrote this morning about uh, Xi and, and I guess China more broadly. And I wonder that, right, there are these sort of, um, like Taiwan, there are these kinds of things that are basically, it's, it's, it's unknowable what will happen, but it will have huge implications if something does happen. Yes. And, and I wonder how you treat these, um, how you treat these scenarios, right? Because you, you have, I wonder, so maybe, maybe the first question is, do you feel because of your interaction and, and, and knowledge of those places, you have a better read of what could happen or is it so complex and all behind the scenes that it's basically unknowable and we're all kind of poking around in the, in the fog because it's just. Well, this, 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 it's, it, it depends whether I have my investor hat on or my writer hat on. So the the easier question, the easier answer is the investor standpoint. So, from an investor standpoint, I don't trade things I can't understand. So going into the the uh, Russia uh, in so it's twenty where are we twenty three is twenty two. So going into twenty one, I held assets in Russia as an investor. I held Russian bonds and I held Russian stocks and paired them together and was getting a nice return for it. And then I saw what was going on in Ukraine. And I said, this seems crazy. Uh, but what do you do if all of a sudden the risk of your position is expanded more than what you'd anticipated? You take less risk. And then I called up all my contacts in Russia and everybody said he's bluffing. There's no way he's going to do this. And then I took less risk. And then as we got closer to it, I said, listen, I have no, I cannot predict this. And then I just closed all my positions in 21. And um, and then the minute he invaded, I closed all my positions in China. Mm. And my my thought being, listen, if Putin is crazy enough to do this in Ukraine, who's to say that she can't do this thing in Taiwan? I certainly can't. So from an investment standpoint, listen, there's other ways of making money. If I can't understand something, I just remove it from my portfolio. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I love liquid markets. I'll do it in a nanosecond. 
Um, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, being a writer uh, uh, on this thing, you know, that's that's more nuanced in terms of that. And I think that that's part of what makes an interesting story is an, another person, you know, when you're when you're writing well, I think it's sort of like for each character, for each situation, there's sort of like a balance between lightness and darkness that we all have within ourselves. And a good story and a good character, it seems to me, is sort of traversing that balance. And you're not making those sort of more digital decisions that you make as a portfolio manager. Like, I can't understand this. I want to get rid of it in my portfolio. As a writer, that's interesting, those situations. And so you want to explore those. And I think that that concept, one of the things I was trying to also elucidate to people is there's a lot of smart people out there who know financial markets are important, but don't understand at all how they work and how they direct them. And I wanted to make in a visceral sense this concept of financial war come alive. We are in a financial war right now. It's crystal clear what's going on with the chip stuff to China and what's going on with what they're trying to do to Russia and what Russia's trying to do to Europe. This is financial war. There's people getting killed, which is the most tragic, but then there's all sorts of different squeezes getting put on. And I wanted to make the mechanics of the actors of that thing seem as real to people as a battlefield scene. Now, I think a battlefield scene will always be more interesting as a writer, just because, I don't know, I've looked at so many of those types of things. It's, I can't not look. You know, right. that new Netflix thing, The All Quiet on the Western Front. I remember reading that book as a teenager and mm. having a huge influence on me, just how vivid it all was. So I think that will always trump. But I think in terms of explaining the world, trying to make this, that these are people taking decisions with a set of assumptions. The assumptions can be faulty. And that's part of what the, without revealing the plot, that's part of what was going on in this book. Um, and that they're at cross purposes to one another. I, I thought that the reason why money is so boring for most people is it's an abstract topic. It's like writing yeah. about water or environmental warning. But money is people. And if you make it about people, then all of a sudden the stories come alive. That is, I'm going to have to stop right there because that I think is not just very true, but it's also, I'm hearing you speak it and like speak it out loud. I'm like, oh, this is a, a theme and in my own writing, my own exploration. I mean, I'm, I spend time in, in banking and at family offices, investing. And for a long time, I was like, why is this so hard? Meaning for, for me, it's like, I'm not a numbers person. Like it's just, uh, I'm trying to make this work and it's just like feels far away from me, but like I've always been interested in the people navigating that system and how they think. And, and, and there is that connection and that connection is very interesting to me. And when it comes to purely, you know, building out a spreadsheet and analyzing a deal, I'm like, okay, this is just not, um, this doesn't, this doesn't interest me in, in the way that it has to, to be really good at it. Um, but I wanted to, to touch on what you just said. So people misunderstand or, or don't properly understand um, markets and, and in the end, and there's, there's kind of two elements. One is, and I think you hinted at that to understand markets or to understand some of the institutions that shape markets, you have to understand kind of the people and you, you wrote uh, about your uncle who was at the fed yeah. and talked about, and you're, so you're like, okay, if I look at the fed, it's really, it's re really people and kind of institutional incentives and their reputation, that kind of stuff. Um, maybe first let me, uh, let's, let's touch on that. What's your. When you look at, at markets and kind of, do, do you think about it as kind of a set of actors and you're trying to understand those people or how do you, 
what's the trade-off between the data and, and understanding individuals and who are also, I guess, limited in their influence, right, by the forces of the market? Um, both uh, is, so you're asking good questions too. So the, um, just to fit, the, you raised something in the, in your response to what I just said about stories. I just want to touch on briefly that I'll talk about the data people thing. People think in stories. That's how we think. Numbers are really important for measuring stuff, but the way people literally think is stories. And stories are about feelings and emotions. And the feelings and emotions are relatively limited in number. And all stories, people have been telling stories for thousands of years, and they revolve really only around a couple of themes. Escape, which is this book is about, is one of them, and a couple of primal emotions. So to make a story resonate with people, you need to be in that zone for it to work. And so when I'm writing either a nonfiction piece or a fiction piece, one of the things I really try to do, which has taken me years to, to get to, is just listen, like, what am I feeling right now? Where is that coming from? And then when I was writing Master Minion, I was definitely, on, I was imagining like how, you know, what is going to irritate each one of these people? What's going to scare each one of them? What do they really want? And you have to be, to make the scenes come alive, each one of those things, you have to be very locked in, just the way you would, and by the way, in a business meeting. If you're somebody who's good in a corporation, you have a very rich understanding of everybody around the table, what they want. And when you're writing a book, you're doing the same thing. It's just all the characters are in your head. In terms of actual uh, investing, you do need to do both, I think, mm. which is um, you need to uh, really be rooted in the numbers, but you really need to think a lot of time about the actors. And I'll, I'll tell you a story that I've shared once before, but I think it's a powerful one. Um, I had the occasion a few times in my life to speak with Soros. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spoke with him in, I believe it was January of 2000, like two weeks after Putin had been put, he was, Putin came to power December 31st, 1999, if, I, if my memory's right. So I asked him, I said, you know, what, what do you make of Russia's new president? And he just looked at me and he said, not to be trusted. That was all he said. And that was, that's an example of somebody way out ahead of, I mean, think what came next, like George Bush, like I looked into this man of his eyes, he has a soul, we were dealing with a psychopath and he got totally played. And so I think really good investors do look at both. You know, if you want to trade a currency, you're looking at the current account of what real interest rates are, what's discounted, da 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 all that stuff. But you really need to think about the people that are in charge. And I have used that throughout my career. So early in my career, when I was, uh, working in a bank, and I remember trying to offer you know strategic advice in the 1998 Asian economic crisis. I had to guess what Greenspan would do, mm. and this this is probably you were probably a young kid at this would, but at the time it seemed really important. And the question was, is he going to cut once or twice or three times? And when I looked at that, I thought, well, this guy grew up during the Great Depression. He's probably scared that it's going to cause a depression. So if it were him, he'd probably take an extra cut just to be sure that he doesn't get one. Now, can you prove that? You can't. You can't. It was probabilistic. And then the piece that you're referring to, you know, when I think about the Fed, I was imagining, okay, say I am the chief of the Fed and I've just committed one of the worst mistakes in monetary policy in like 50 years. How am I thinking? I'm probably thinking I'm an idiot and I need to repair it. 
I mean, that's a rare reason. Well, he might not be thinking that way. He might be somebody who's just straight raw numbers. He's just going to follow the data. But probably a part of him is feeling stupid because people are people. And I know when I do something stupid, it lingers with you. Mm. So, yes, I try to use that what, 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 I'm, uh, uh, what I'm thinking. This is so interesting. I, yeah, I read about the, the Soros story, I think, in, in one of your Substack pieces. And um, what's interesting to me, well, there's, there's a couple of elements. It's one of the themes in the book is, right, the, um, the person, the, the protagonist, he's kind of running around the world. And Nick. Yeah, he's trading, he's trading information, right? Yes. And he's trying to assemble the mosaic. And, yes. and I think a lot of times we, thanks to the internet and whatever, people sit at their desk and you open up Bloomberg and you open up Tegas and whatever, and you have all of your information digitally. And the process in the book is very different because basically there is a, there's a paper trail and there's, there's some certain, there's certain information that's important, but access to that comes to interacting with people and then sort of trading and building relationships and building trust or you know, maybe getting played, right? It's, and I think Soros, for example, is somebody who also in his career had access yes. to central bankers or to certain people and, and strikes me was very good at that. So I'm curious how you think about that human element of, you know, relationships and, and finding intelligence, being on the ground, like where did that come from? How was that part of your career maybe? Or how, just, just tell me everything you know about that because I think it's fascinating. Uh, it's definitely part of my career. Um, and it started when I was at Bank Boston uh, that the, the CEO was invited to the G7 IMF meetings and didn't want to go. And the invitation got like sent to a bunch of people. They all refused. And then finally, after like four refusals, it landed on my desk. And I was like, are you kidding me? Yes, I want to go. And I just tried to meet with, like, I like talking with people. Um, and so I would try to meet with everybody. It was a little bit like the podcast. I just tried to seek out people who would be interesting. And if they said no, no big problem, talk to the next person. Mm. Now, the you know, to do that, you need to be able to read between the lines, sort of imagining what they're like and, and how they fit together. Now, in authoritarian countries where everything is monitored, it's required. So, for instance, uh, for this book, I asked uh, a Russian businessman I know. I tried to, I tried to, I did a lot of research on it. I never served in the military. The main character did, so I interviewed a lot of military people, and then I went down to interviewing military translators. Like, literally, walked me through everything because I wanted to get that right. Yeah, I um, I showed it to people in the CIA, and basically said, "Listen, you're espionage people. I'm not. Um, one retired." person, you know, uh, one current. And I said, um, I want this to, you know, if you're an espionage person, I don't want this to read hollow. You know, how would you, and it was fascinating what they, the holes they picked in my drafts. They're like, oh, that was fine, but that's totally ridiculous. There's a chase scene in Gorky Park. And one of them said mm. to me, oh, he goes, oh, that's perfect. And I said, why? And he goes, because it's so stupid. Nobody would ever do that. And you basically have him as a kind of inexperienced guy. It's perfect for an, that's exactly the type of mistake an inexperienced guy. Mm -hmm. I thought I was being clever. And he was, I was like, okay, so I left that in there. But then I tried to, through contacts, get people um, on the dark side in Russia and China to look at this it, during COVID. Impossible. So what happens is, is in Russia, for instance, there's a lot of ex KGB people who then get hired by private businesses to actually interact with the KGB or the FSB now 
so that if they're trying to extort money for them or something like that, they have his professional contacts and he's like, oh yeah, we served in Dagestan together, you know, let's try to. So I said, could I talk to them about the book? Mm. And what everybody said is nothing electronic. If you were in Moscow, which I couldn't be because of the various, they said, we could probably set you up with a meeting and you could ask them questions. And so what I did is I asked the non-KGB Russian business people, I said, and various different plot elements, I said, is this plausible? Is this plausible? Is this plausible? And there's some pretty crazy stuff in there. And they were like, oh, that's totally plausible. They're like, in fact, I'm sure it happens. And I was like, really? I was like making making things up that seemed pretty extraordinary. And I ran it by them. They go, yeah, of course the FSB does that. And I was like, okay, we're safe. So in those places, so personal contacts were definitely a part of my training and trying to understand that. So I had a sort of rough idea of what that would look like. And then in those countries, you know, in China, everything happens at the dinner table. The official meeting is very boring, but then... You know, you go out to dinner afterwards and various different things. And that's when you actually learn stuff. And there's a whole group of people, Europeans and Americans who are fluent in Chinese, who basically their career is doing that. Yeah, it's interesting because some of those scenes, um, there's a lot of, there, there's the importance of etiquette, right? And like yes. what can be said in what order and what what question can be asked or how does it have to be phrased and, and things quickly, like some things are not to be talked about or some yes. things are, are too hot or like a foreigner can't talk about. Like there's all of these nuances. And um, so I'm curious how, I'm curious how you think about what that means for somebody who is on the outside and, you know, trying to make investments, trying to understand what's going on, but really doesn't understand the, the those subtle rules of that social game. Is it possible for somebody to come in and like, you know, um, build trust and, and do that? Or is it just something where... I don't always... think so. I think that those places are too internal. And if I look at, you know, I look at people, very smart investors, what's happened to them over the quarter century I've been dealing with Russia, most everybody's gotten crushed. And they've gotten crushed for those reasons. And by the way, a lot of my Russian entrepreneur friends have also gotten crushed. And through, you know, there's, there's so much material I could have put the book that I did. But through crazy types of things that you would think, well, this is an insider. You know, I had one friend there who built a factory and he spent a lot of money to build the factory. And after the factory was built, the people from the locale where it was said, you need, now need to pay us a million bucks. And he said, what do I, I own the factory. And they go, aha, but you don't own the land beneath your factory. And we, and he was like, okay, but this thing is not going to produce a million dollars of profits. And he had to shut, and he just lost. Boom, poof, gone. And that type of thing has happened to a lot of people. So I think that once you're in a place that is that opaque and corrupt, it's very, very difficult to create wealth. That's just the reality. Because uh, the, the people in charge are not incentivized whatsoever to do that. And it's very different in this country. And so if you, you know, you look at the chart of, you know, the 10 year return, or I have to look at the exact date. So the Chinese stock market is zero. There's a mm. reason for that. And it has to do with share issuance and erratic government policy and all those types of things. And so, and it's not only foreigners that suffer from that, the locals do as well. And so these, these medieval systems are about retaining power. They're not about creating wealth. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So especially wealth for outsiders, right? There's that dynamic of maybe if wealth gets created, it just gets captured by somebody who can um, who can extract or extort it 
Um, but but think about Jack Ma right now. Like, how much wealth does he actually have? It's an interesting question. Like, is, right? how much of it can be taken away from him? And what's he doing hanging out in Japan? And if he goes back to China, what would that look like? And all that? Like, how stable is that? It's not stable. And so those systems are so loose that they can create huge wealth increases, but it's unbelievably unstable, which is why many of those people try to get the heck out of there as fast yeah. as they can and keep the, keep the money somewhere where it can be held on. That, that was one of the... Uh, one of the fun paradoxes that gets touched on in the book, right, is on the one hand, there's this sort of thesis floating around that, you know, the West and, and the U.S. specifically is on the decline, the dollars yeah. collapse, right? It's it's all these like over leveraged, like it's it's all the talking points. And then there's this moment where he's like, well, you know, if that's true, why is everybody here in the supposedly rising nation trying to get their wealth out and like into yes. offshore real estate and offshore accounts <laughs> like why is everybody supposed like fleeing the the winning system and it's because even if that is true you're still not kind of safe it's still kind of fragile um and uh and for the individual i mean and there's like all of these contradictions i just i just love that about the book um i wanted to ask you something else about the um i guess the the, the hedge fund environment that, that that nick finds himself in and yeah here's a great quote he's like Everybody understood the boss had money. They, the hangers on, me included, wanted that money, and we all try to destroy each other to get it. Yes. Right? And so he, like, I think that the takes, even though they're not the main theme of the book, on kind of hedge fund politics or office culture or just that, that I think were very on point. And I wonder if you think that's sort of, like, like give me your, your, your take on that. Is that, you know, generally the case? Is this like a very unique culture you're like this is like a bad example of a, of a hedge fund and and uh and or does it just attract that kind of person like just tell me about what you've learned think, about that um i would say it's more my take on corporate life oh corporate so i think that corporate life can give you something remarkable you know it it ties you into a structure it gets you something you know much bigger i remember when i was working for dow jones uh, uh, initially, this is very early on in my career, I would r write an article and then the headlines would go out around Times Square. They used to have that ticker there. Yeah. And I remember one time getting out of the subway there like 20 minutes after I'd finished work and seeing my thing going around there. So if you're, if you're tied to a big, one of these big corporations, you're part of something much bigger than yourself and it's exciting. And the thing about these corporations, whether it's a hedge fund or whether it's a major tech company or, or a major media company, is they have scale. Mm. That's the reason that's exciting about them is that they they have the ability to create a product that uh, can achieve this unbelievable thing, which we've had in the last 50 years, which is a scale that was just incomprehensible to previous time. However, with that creates unbelievable wealth. And with that unbelievable, I think that wealth is corrupting in terms of how people behave. And so when you get close to that, it 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 brings out the worst in people. And it's particularly, at least in my experience, if it's really in American corporate culture, it's so complicated because on the surface, people are unbelievably genial and nice and warm yeah. because you're rewarded for being that way, for being, quote unquote, a team player. But underneath the surface, you have this fight for the limited pot of gold and the promotions and all that type of thing. And I think it probably works the same way in many corporations. I haven't worked in tech or, you know, or, or entertainer or hospitality, but for people I've spoken with in those sectors, it seems to be pretty much the same way. 
And so I just wanted to describe that because I don't think I hadn't seen portrayals of it that it was well described, which is that you get something and you give something. And like I looked at a lot of films about Wall Street and all of them are about how corrupt the system is and the people are out doing no social good. And I always, I read the, I look at them, I was always so frustrated because it's like, it's more complicated than mm -hmm. that. Yeah. They are doing something that is, uh, that has meaning and there's this other element to it. And you really have to talk about both of them to get it right. And particularly literary people, it's basically like Wall Street people are a little bit like the way Germans used to be in our films or now Russians are. It's like, yeah. they are the convenient evil person. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, look at a system without Wall Street people. Like, that's what North Korea looks like. So that's also really good. So you got to sort of, you got to look at the whole picture. Yeah, I think it's very easy to paint this caricature, right? Where the yes. entire financial system is just like, oh, it's it's corrupt, it's bloated, it's extractive. And, and so, and then you paint all the people in it as just these one-dimensional, very greedy, um, yes. again, caricatures. And, and I think... There's obviously an element of truth. It does select for people who are um, looking to make a lot of money, but there is this whole element of, I guess, um, well, the, the the solving of the puzzle, right, and and applying yourself to trying to figure out how to allocate capital and how to um, how to navigate that market. I mean, that's what fascinates me. But it comes with once you're in an organization with what I think you really painted a great picture of this. Um, there is a zero sum game happening yeah. in the market as a whole. And then in the organization um, where you're in the team and you're fighting for your bonus and you're, um, yes. you're sort of stuck in that. And there is a moment or there's a theme in, in the book where Nick basically realizes like, okay, I have to somehow get out of this or I will become like the boss. I will become an yes. addict myself. And yes. it strikes me that you obviously, I mean, you spend a career in financial markets, but now you've chosen to, um, to uh, go a different path. I'm curious, is there an element of, of you in that thinking? Or um, do you think everybody ultimately transforms into, if you're you near know, that substance for too long, you, you transform into somebody who can no longer, no longer live? There's, there's a lot of things. There's a little bit of me in every single character, truth be told, even the diabolical ones. The, um, uh, you know, as they say, write what you know, and you have to imagine, you know, what, what each one of those people and, you know, draws on, draws on strains of yourself. Um, I think that, that money can make you crazy. Like, it's a very strange thing. We need money. Being poor, I've, I've been in very limited circumstances. It's unpleasant. But it's also true that money, too much money, I think, is not good for you. It's a little bit like food. And, you know, when you were asking those questions, I was imagining like how different is it in other industries? Like imagine you're sitting around the table with Tim Cook and he's making 80 million bucks or 100 million bucks or whatever type of thing. And you're the guy that's making a million bucks. Now, a million bucks is t puts you in the top 0.1% of salaries there. And you're sitting next to him. And you're like, but this guy's not that much smarter than me. He's earning $80 million. Like yeah. I guarantee you there's somebody in that room thinking that way. Because people are people. And so it's a strange, so I wanted to get at a little bit the thing like in these big money, the hedge fund thing is what I was familiar with, so I could write about that more. But I'm trying to make a more universal point that money can make us crazy. And you have these people, many of the people in the fictional hedge fund were motivated, and I tried to get a little bit, all for their various different reasons of why the security of money was a major motivator for them. And I found that, the pe you know, people who grew up in, very difficult circumstances 
and they wanted a ton of money. Part of it was maybe because they're a little bit greedy, but part of it is because that's what felt safe. Yeah. They grew up in such a limited circumstances that desire for safety just, you know, was almost unextinguishable. Um, the, uh, uh, but I think that it does have this quality that's a little bit limited in your thinking. And I think that there are like, what is somebody who is making really great art doing? It's not something that can be measured almost in their lifetime. Like there's a lot of artists who, at the time, they seem brilliant. And then with the passage of time, they're like, not so much. And there's other audience at the time, nothing. And then you're, like the classic example is Herman Melville. When he was writing Moby Dick, nobody mm. thought nobody thought it was a good book. And then well after he died, people were like, no, no, this is an American classic. That could happen to you if you're in the artistic sphere. So it's highly uncertain. Yeah. But the concept, I, and I've run into a lot of people like this, they have both this desire for security, but they have some sort of higher aspiration they're aiming for. It could be spiritual. It could be in terms of service. It could be artistic. And I think a lot of times it's buried in people. And he's a, Nick is a little bit of an exaggeration of that mm. because he really wants to, and I've sequeled mine and everything like that, where he wants to go. But I think there's an element of that in many, many people. And it's terrifying to open up that side of you. I know one person who left the hedge fund industry and became a movie producer. And he describes it um, a little bit, uh, he's straight, but he describes it a little bit almost like coming out. Mm. Like to say, like, I'm an artist. And yeah. there was an element of that that I was trying to say in the book. So I think that this this idea of coming out and saying, I want something beyond money and power is makes people feel very vulnerable. And I wanted to get that into a character because I know so many people where some element of that is bubbling. Yeah, I found that fascinating and and it really resonated with me probably because I was struggling with that same notion and for years um, enjoyed writing but didn't do anything with it and had this mm. very um, active voice that said, you know, you, you can't make any money with that. That's not a career. Classic. Silly. It's like, who are Classic. you? And like, I'm not, I grew up in Germany. So like just the writing I do in English, it's already like a step up, like writing in a, in a <laughs> different language. So they, there were all these reasons why, no, try just, just do the thing that makes sense and, you know, and compensate. And then later, once you're rich, you can do whatever, right? Then it doesn't matter. Yes. But it was yes. sort of this, this complete fantasy um, that was to me, uh, just took, took a lot to, to open up, right? It feels a little bit like and, coming and up, right? Seeing yeah. like, no, 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 yeah, this yeah. is me. And so yeah. you're another example of it. And I think that that's widespread. And I've seen people, I remember, um, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, I grew up in DC. I remember a woman on my street who was just an absolute tough ass political system. She worked for this congressman, like long hours, diet coke and smoking and what's the big vote and stuff like that. And at a certain point, she just snapped. And I remember that she worked crazy hours for like 15 years. And then literally for a year, she just sat on her front porch, just smoking and, you know, drinking and Coke or something and staring off into the distance. And I was like, wow, you know, there's something in there that broke and came out. And I find that I've seen that with so many times. And so I wanted to try to make that again, vivid with a person. And, and also I was very interested, like, I can't, I can paint stick figures. The <laughs> same, idea same. of somebody, the idea, like, I think artists are really cool, 
And so the idea of that, and then I talked to a lot of artist friends. I said, what would he be looking at? You know, what would he be reading? Mm-hmm. Like it was a way to live through there. Uh, like if I, if I could paint big canvases like he wants to do, I would have done that as opposed to writing, but I can't. And yeah. so I was like, okay, well, I'll imagine that character and that'll allow this person to come to life. Yeah, I love that in, in the sense that you can get a sense of the way this character, he, the way Nick goes to life. He's like, he goes into a situation and he starts thinking about like the colors and, the, the, and like, he's like, oh, I would paint it this way. I love that because even if you're not a painter, you can kind of see how everybody has their own intuitive lens on the world or their own in, individual lens. And like, for me, it's, it's very different. Like I can't really visualize things that well. Um, so it's not that at all. Um, but then you started thinking like, okay, what's my, what do I default into, right? Like, where do I, right. how do I right. think about, how do I capture the world? So um, I wanted to touch on one last metaphor of yours. And, and I think what I enjoy about your writings is you, you, you managed to like make these, just make these beautiful metaphors. And one was the, the flows and eddies of life. And, and there were a couple of examples, but just. How do you, that was sort of a broader, like, how do I think about life and, and, and the different paths it can take it? Um, tell me about that, just that metaphor. Yeah, it was a Substack mind. essay. Thank yes. you. The, um, my, my basic thought was, um, uh, and some of it was sad a little bit, but now it's the difference between speaking exprompto versus writing. But basically, life is happening to us every single day. And, and, there's a real there's a real limit for how it goes on. One of the reasons I left Bridgewater when I was 52, and one of the reasons was I was like I, I literally this, you're talking about the analytical and the emotional. I calculated how many months I was going to live. Okay. I just literally looked at it like an actuarial table, and I think when I left Bridgewater, I have to read the calculations, but I had 384 months to live. And so statistically it, speaking, statistically expected, speaking. Yeah. And I thought about that, and there's a pretty wide range around that if it's an individual. Yeah. And so I thought about that, like, listen, these 384 months are going to come, like, there's nothing I can do. That is just the flow. Mm-hmm. And how do I stay stay in that for myself? And I think that each one of us, and it's very, it was, at least it was very hard for me to see when I was young. You have to listen to carefully, like, what is that real thing that works for you? Like there was a period of time where I had no money and I had a young family and money really, really made a difference to try to make a, a comfortable tent, if you will, to sort of shelter them. But it a little bit like you, when I was thinking inside, it was like, this isn't the primary thing that motivates me. Like if, you know, if I've got a million bucks now, if I next year have a million dollars and a hundred thousand dollars and the year after that, I have a million dollars and 200,000. I was like that. That does not actually motivate me. And then those months are going by. It's going 383 and 382 and 381. And there are these eddies that you could get stuck at in life. And there's lots of eddies. The eddies are unbelievably, and there's the obvious eddies. So, you know, I think addiction is an eddy. And a lot of people wrestle with that. And there's there's different forms of addiction. I think anger uh, could be uh, an eddy. And I think that being in a job you hate could be an eddy. So there are all these different eddies that can develop in different ways. And the tricky thing about a real eddy is it's very hard to tell when you're in one. So -hmm. if I listen to you and you describe this thing that you have this, I think I want to write, but I think that that's really stupid. That's an eddy. Yes. And maybe initially you feel like I'm having this thought, oh, that's a stupid thought. 
but you're going around and around and around. That's yes. an eddy. Now, how the heck do you get out of that eddy? And everybody has these things. And there's so many, you know, they come in, you know, in our relationships. The other day to my uh, uh, wife, she asked me a question and I answered with a little bit the wrong tone. And then I was going for a walk and I was like, you schmuck. It's like you were being a little bit. So I texted her. I said, hey, sorry, I was a little bit. That's an eddy. So we all have this thing. There's a flow to a conversation. There's a flow to our lives. There's a periodicity to our lives. You know, when you're young, you have this type of thing. And I was like, for me, the goal is just to try to be in that flow as best I can and do a better job of recognizing those eddies. And like in this transition that I've made when I left Bridgewater, I didn't have a paycheck anymore. I was terrified. Absolutely terrified, even though I'd had a spreadsheet and calculations and maybe no one would buy the writing and stuff like that, but I was terrified. And then after a while, I realized that's an eddy too. Mm. Like you have to get like the, the, the feeling of not knowing if this interview was going to be good or bad or what exactly I'm going to do afterwards. It's like I have to get comfortable with that discomfort. Yeah. That is the flow to bring this thing out. And the eddy is that feeling of fear that I'm getting. Um, and it, it affects everything. You know, if I look at my trading, I've had pretty good results, but I've taken way too little risk historically. Why? Because it's been a little bit like, I don't know if I could, yes. uh, but you don't want to take too much risk because that's a different form of Eddie because you're overconfident. And so that, that middle ground. So what I was just trying to describe is I feel like we're all on this journey together and we're all doing it individually. And it's just recognizing that flow of time and trying to be as in sync with it as we can, which is exceedingly difficult because that kaleidoscope notion of what's true, I think that's true for all of us. It's shifting a little bit moment by moment. So knowing where you go on the river is very, very subtle. Oh, that was that was beautiful. And the, uh, the cal calculating the months reminds me of this Tim Urban piece where he visualizes, um, he calls it the tail end. He visualizes how much time you probably have left with certain people in your life and how basically mm. by the time you read this, you probably run out of a lot of the a special moment with you know parents or siblings um and it's very easy to to forget that and right and, and be in the eddy and sort of i guess what struck me with is um i always thought about it as kind of loops of of behavior thinking and in you're in there and you're not actually aware that you're yes. circling you're it's sort of well this is how it is and this is my reality and like this is the thing that's happening to me and it's hard to break that frame and step out of it. Like, no, there's no totally. reason. Like you can totally, you can totally make that change, but only if you develop that, that awareness. So I love that piece. And I really look forward to, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's why it's an eddy. Yes. In other words, if it was obvious, it wouldn't be an eddy. Yeah. Like we're smart people and we're struggling. And I'd also say that we, as a, as humans, we're at this very unique point of history because we've created so much wealth. We have an opportunity to choose that pretty much until 100 years ago, thousands of years, people weren't, they didn't have the opportunity to choose. Now we have all these choices. It's complicated. Yeah. And so I think we got to, you know, have high standards for ourselves and give ourselves a break at the same time because the nature of an entity is an optical illusion. Yeah, it's hard to, to it, it, you mistake it for reality and then you're like, yes. you mistake the illusion for reality and, and you sort of don't understand that it's in your power to change it. But also, I mean, I think a lot about, this is why maybe the, so I live in New York and I'm sort of acutely aware of how the, my social environment, how that does shape me 
right mm -hmm. in, in in different ways and so like if you work at a bank right then you're a lot of your peers are also you know yeah. in a bank and they have certain ideas and certain values and whether you like it or not that sort of starts to to shape how you how you look at life or you run around with a lot of cognitive dissonance all day right um and and i think your your description of that hedge fund um and the politics and the the social interactions i it just seeing that in a story to me is very powerful because it reminds you of how you're um how it happens in your own life in, in whatever community you're in and um and how you if it's not a positive community how you can how that can become an eddy right and you're like well this thing is important and it's just because it's mimetic desire right it's this is important because it's important to all the people around you but you sort yeah. of after a while you stop noticing that that's the yeah. dynamic and you stop noticing your own core so Again, I can't wait to share some quotes from the book and 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 from your awesome. stuff with people. I, I really look forward to it. I think uh, I and I look forward to to whatever you're writing next. I, I think there's a lot of layers, a lot of great ideas, and I'm, I'm really glad um, Graham Duncan is, is the one who told me about your work. I'm really uh, grateful to him for for that recommendation. Graham Duncan, I don't know who that is. Uh, he uh, he's an investor. He, uh, I'll, I'll I'll share some some of his writing with you after. He's, it's it's uh, cool very much uh, worth reading. So, so thank you. Paul. Well, I'm, was, I'm genuinely was... thankful for you reaching out to me because, you know, I'm starting, you know, I'm relatively early on this path and, uh, you know, looking, looking for opportunities to spread the word. And so this is a real gift which you've given me. I'm, I'm really genuinely appreciative. And, you know, maybe we have a cup of coffee sometime. I, I would love that. And the pleasure is all mine. And uh, this was terrific. Thank you for taking the time.